I'm John Robb, and this is a trailer for the John Robb Tapes podcast. It sounds like this. I don't know how long have we been at it, Chris. Like, no. We've been revolving in and out of bands that never really did anything or even kept a name for more than a month. And I yeah. said, uh, my name is Patty. And he said, well, my name is Bob. And I looked at him and I said, um, you don't seem like a Bob to me. Is it right if I call you Robert? And, uh, and he smiled. And I called him Robert ever since. And so did everybody else. <laughs> Love to. Yeah. 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 Love to. Same as what we do every year. Yeah, for every post. Love to you. I've heard this globally. <laughs> Lovely yeah. to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Oh, the front warden, lots of sleep. But something's missing like a light switch out of From archive interviews with Nirvana, Patti Smith, to upcoming bands. Subscribe now for the John Rob Tapes, coming soon. Welcome to the Best of Times podcast. My name's John Doran. In this series of podcasts for Lush and the Quietus, I have been talking to people about some of the best and worst times they have been through, and in the process, finding out how these experiences have made them who they are today. In this episode, I talk to the writer, Kate Tempest. Kate grew up in South London, first performing as a poet at an open mic night at the age of 16. Since then, she's become well-known for her fearsome work ethic. She's been a playwright, a novelist, a band leader, a rapper, a published poet, and a spoken word artist. She's won the Ted Hughes Award and been nominated for the Mercury Prize. This month sees the release of her most accomplished album to date, The Book of Traps and Lessons. Kate, tell me about the best of times. The period of about 2014 to 2017 was just an incredible little chunk of time because it was when all the dreams were coming true, really. And what I mean by that is that I've been like desperately trying to get uh, kind of out out of like the, the the gig world I was stuck in and the poetry scene that I felt like stuck in, and I was getting the same gigs, I was playing the same kind of circuits and I was desperate to get into the music industry I was desperate to make some kind of transition with my writing and then this is the time when it all happened that was the time when Brand New Ancients which was a long story that I wrote was touring it was a time when Everybody Down came out which is my first solo album I put an album out of my band Sound The Run before but it had gone nowhere and it was just an incredible time it was when we we started touring like really touring went all over the place my Poetry Collection Hold Your Own was published. I was published by a real publisher rather than... Previously, I'd been self-publishing. Also, my novel, I wrote a novel, which came out in 2016. So in that in this chunk of time, it was just this huge, um, momentous, creative, like, terrifying, amazing chunk of time, really. So many things happened, but I see it as one... It's like one little moment. I can't really separate the things out from each other because it was all happening at the same time. I guess there's going to be quite a few artists listening to this who maybe feel that they're on some kind of plateau themselves. Was there anything kind of psychologically or philosophically or or just anything really that you changed about your routine that helped you to kind of break through? Well, I think it was just accumulation of... um, 
all this energy and momentum that I'd been building up through stuff that I'd been doing, whether that was running around, yeah, gigging as much as I could. Even as I say, I was kind of stuck in the same scene. It was also like a, you know, a kind of critical mass type situation where I was just doing as much as I possibly could, sometimes two or three gigs a night and, you know, these kind of things. It starts to build up this momentum, even in you, even to get out of that and get one gig that could pay you like something rather than three that pay you nothing. Like. And um, in terms of like psychological breakthroughs, I think writing Brand New Ancients was like a bit of a breakthrough. And just previously to that, I'd written my first play, which was called Wasted, which was a huge breakthrough because suddenly my creativity, which up to that point had only ever come out in one way, which was like rhymes or, you know, lyrics. Suddenly I, I realised that there was this whole new space for my creativity, which was dialogue, plot. You know, suddenly it was like, wow, I, I could... I could think in new ways, like a new gate opened up and it just was like a feverish time for making these creative connections between ideas and how they could possibly be manifested as pieces of work. So you obviously worked really, really hard for a very long period of time before this happened. And one thing that I'm really interested in is that anyone who does any kind of writing, and that would apply to me or any other kind of job in journalists or kind of like writers of any kind, is that while you're kind of struggling in the first bit of your career, you will inevitably kind of suffer from imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, how did you keep your head straight waiting for this stuff to happen? You know, how did you... Because you didn't seem to dip at any point. You were just constantly working. I think the imposter syndrome, it it's always there. I don't think it, it ever gets resolved, really. But I think um, it is, it's a quieter frequency. It's at a different pitch than the other frequency, which is like, I have got so much I need to say. Oh, my gosh, I need to keep writing. Like, there's more I want to do. And things that were happening, like, we, we made everybody down. I made it with Dan Carey on his basically in his downtime because I couldn't get in the studio with him because, you know, he's a, he was a music producer and I was like this puppet. <laughs> like, and uh, eventually managed to get, like, you know, we got, like... I went round to his studio one evening after after he'd done his session and just this, like... The, because you've been waiting so long to have a chance to be in a studio, suddenly when I could get in the studio with him, it was like, yeah, the imposter syndrome was there, but more present was, like this energy of like, okay, this is it, this is the time, amazing. And we, we made so much work so quickly because of this energy between us, of this intense admiration for each other and also the possibilities. Admiration for possibilities was like endless, really. So um, then we couldn't get, nobody really wanted to sign it. He's got links in the music industry, you know, and even he couldn't get anyone to sign it. <laughs> and eventually, Will Ashon, who's also a writer, fantastic writer, but he was the guy that ran Big Dada Records at the time. And he picked it up, he took it on. And that that was, like, for me, to be signed to Big Dada was, like, huge because of Roots Maneuver and because of Young Fathers as well. And I, I wanted to ask about Roots Maneuver as an influence. I think... Sometimes I detect uh, some of his flow in you. Would that be a kind of a fair, like a fair um, observation? I'm I'm sure it's there. Like I think with things like that, it's not an intentional. Um, 
it's not in, intentional, but I'm sure definitely that there's there's parts of that influence in what I'm doing. I, I love him. I've always loved him. I was lucky enough to meet him as a as a teenager. I managed. He was like rapping at this night in um, was it Labrook Grove or something like that? Somewhere not in South London, basically. I'd had to travel like <laughs> kind of across town, and he was say at the Rocket or something. Anyway, he was rapping at this thing and. Um, there was a rapper from Lewisham who was the host. This guy called, was it Scheme? Anyway, like, I, we kind of knew each other and the, it got to the end of the set and I managed to get on the mic. I managed to, like, get let this guy get me on the mic at the right at the end. And I just gave it absolutely everything I had, I thought. Because, you know, when you're trying to get into the music industry, you think all that you need to make it work is for someone who's already releasing albums just to know that you exist. And then you think it's all going to happen. Yeah. Like, you're like, if I can just get you know, get heard by this person or that yeah. person. It happens now to me is that people come up after a show and they just want to tell you a poem or tell you a lyric. And I really recognise the energy. But now I know that it's actually there's actually nothing that person can really do for you yeah. apart from, I don't know, like maybe give you some kind of energy and support. But anyway, this thing happened. I started rapping. I managed to get... Uh, I thought I tried to get his contact. Years went by. We couldn't meet. And then eventually we kind of found each other. And he said, oh, I remembered you. And I went down to his studio where he was working with my friend. And we went and we played in some demos. And this was like... I must have been like 19, 20. And I'm 33 now, so it's a long time ago. And like he would basically said to me, like you're not ready yet. He's like, you need to put in 10 years before you're ready to start. He said, um, brand new second hand came out when he was 28 and he started at 18. And he was just like, you know, why, you're in such a rush, you, you think you're really ready. Like, and he understood that energy, but he was just like, you're not ready to start. And it was such a crushing blow because I thought all I have to do is get to the studio and, that's, and then suddenly it's all gonna change and I'm gonna be like, you know, a musician, it's gonna, it's gonna happen for me. And he gave that advice and it really stuck with me because everybody down came out, I was 28. And he was right, you have to put yeah. 10 years in before you're ready to start. He was absolutely right. Okay, tell me about the worst of times. For sure, well, funnily enough, that this time, this period of 2014 to 2017, as well as it being the time when all these dreams came true, I found myself touring, playing Brixton Academy, and having a record deal and having a publishing deal, it was also the worst of times at the same time because on top of all this great success and elation, I was also in a really bad place in my life. So uh, my mental health was in a terrible state. I was suffering. My marriage broke down. I've had like a problem with drink and drugs since I was a teenager and that gets worse and better depending on... Um, how I manage my mental health, etc. So it was like it was it was dark. It got pretty dark, and like mentally, I wasn't I wasn't strong. I wasn't prepared. And at the same time, all this stuff is happening, which you know you've been dreaming of since you were a child. Like you know to be extremely thankful for the opportunity to play a real stage at Glastonbury, for example, or to be like in a tour bus with your like your best friends, you know, traveling around Europe, like some of the most like electrifying, incredible experiences you've ever had in your life. But the reality also is that when you get home and you shut the door, you're hearing things that aren't there or you can't get up off the floor or like whatever it is, your, your actual relationships with friends and family outside of work, they really suffer because you've got nothing left to give, all that stuff. So it was like this mad balancing act of like, 
I'm in like the weakest place I've ever been. I feel so vulnerable and unwell. And at the same time, you've got to go out and be extremely strong in front of like, what, 5,000 people now in the audience. And the thing is, you've built that crowd up. I've built that crowd up from nothing. I've been out in front of two people for a long time. So it's like, you, you know, there's a part of you that knows not to take any of it for granted. And that part is like extremely loud speaking, but there's just this other part like to put it into context, I, um, when, since I was like a teenager, I smoked like loads of weed, basically like between like an eighth and quarter ounce of like strong weed a day, like from like the age of about fourteen till about I was in my early twenties when I gave it up. But um, it led to like some pretty heavy psychosis, basically. Where um, at the time I thought there was two of me, there there became two identities that often would be in conflict with each other and these two Kates didn't like each other very much so if you take that as like the that's like the base level and put on top of that all the other drink drugs touring the madness of like suddenly people suddenly are interested in interviewing you and like people that know your work want to come up and tell you all these mad stories about what your poetry's done for them in their life and like it's just crazy pressure so what you're dealing with is like suddenly you are two people. You have actually, so suddenly this psychosis that I had as a teenager and young adult in my adolescence that I thought I'd dealt with holistically, suddenly it just, it, it, it came true. I was living it. It was fucking terrifying, to be honest. Was there a sense in which this was kind of like, be careful for what you wish for? Or was there a sense in which... Um, you had some kind of like vertigo, you know, you're just starting to go up and up and you, there's an element of self-sabotage to it. Maybe that. Like, I think that once once things start happening, you don't want to take your foot off the pedal because, you're, you know, it could all stop, like, at any minute, really. And you've been waiting so long for this to happen, like... And I was desperate to put all of my energy behind every single project that came my way at the time. I was desperate to kind of break out of this like small world that I was in of like whatever it was, like doing poetry in a fucking foyer of a theatre, like when I wanted to be in the main room, you know, like. And uh, to get there, to get myself to a place where I could write and be taken seriously as a writer and to make music and be taken seriously as a musician, I, I told myself I had to go through, I had to go through all this, had to keep doing it, but I feel like I was kind of operating, you know, the red light was on on the dashboard, my, my tank was empty for about two years and I just had to keep pushing through. And incrementally it would get better and worse, it's fine, that's not how it works with your mental health, sometimes sometimes you're fine. And when you're fine, you're, you're so fine that you're fine, everything's fine, you can handle it and then sometimes you can't handle it. But the, the kind of weird part of it is, is like, there's in Chinese medicine anyway, um, or so I've been told by a doctor that I met, um, extreme emotion is dangerous. Like the the ideal state is a kind of equilibrium of like neither extreme elation nor extreme despair. But that is kind of the life of a of of me. <laughs> like, so yeah. it's like in some ways you can't have these huge peaks. You can't go out on stage and do that and take everybody and go yourself to this other place if you're not prepared to also like take the hit. You know. There's a temptation as a writer, isn't there, to kind of romanticise this stuff? Like, if I leave some of this drama and chaos aside, maybe I will lose an essential spark to my own creativity. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure, there is that going on. But that's also, for me, that was like um, something that I had to learn to let go of. Because, yes, you do have this fear that... Um, because you don't know where the creativity comes from. To, to us, writers, makers of creativity, makers of creative works, it's no less a mystery than it is to anybody else where it really comes from. So you, you kind of... You make up all this stuff about where it comes from or why it's coming to you. It's like, oh, I'm, you know... And I, I did write about my marriage breaking up. I, I have written about my mental health. It, it's throughout all of my work is my struggles and my demons. But, like, at the same time, what I'm learning now is about abundance. Like, it's not going anywhere. It, it's not going to leave me if I st start to take care of myself. And that's what I always thought was going to happen, like, that if I did anything that could jeopardise the creativity, like... I wouldn't be able to live with myself. But actually, like, you have to take care of yourself and trust that, yeah, your, your creative process might change. You, you, when you're satisfied and peaceful, it's not the same energy as when you're climbing up the walls and you need to write. But something different happens. Something different happens to the work, you know, like... And it all culminated in 2017. We left... Uh, I left London in my car with my wonderful partner and our dog and loads of our stuff in the Citroen Berlingo. And we drove 12 hours to the foothills of the Pyrenees where we rented this, like, barn in the middle of nowhere and, like, embarked on this mad year of, like, basically putting all the pieces back together and just getting ready for stage two, like, and just... like And I, I feel like now I've done that and taken stock, all of this stuff isn't... It's not intimidating to me anymore. Like, none, none of this stuff is, is worrying, like... Actually, the creative process is, is abundant now. It's like, I feel like I don't have to worry that it's going to run out or I'm, this imposter syndrome thing we talked about. That's all just kind of faded into a different key and there's, like, a new thing happening, which is, like, I don't know, more secure or something. What's your routine, like, as regards to kind of keeping your head straight? Well, I'm, I'm trying to learn right now how to be well and take care of myself while going through um, the necessities of touring, which is, like, no sleep. You don't really get much time for yourself. So in order to keep, like, you know, some kind of, like, check on how you're, you know, living is actually really, really difficult. But people do it. I mean, like, also it's worth saying that people are able to live very well on tour when they're, like selling out arenas do you know what I mean they can bring a personal trainer and a chef yeah, and stuff yeah, course, all that yeah, stuff you yeah. know and then f f <clears throat> like there's stuff you can do though isn't there I mean like I've, I've always said like you know what's the the, the, the big difference between Jason Pierce from Spaceman 3 and Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays yeah. is probably only about two hours extra sleep a night and a bag of tangerines a day <laughs> You know, even if you take off one or two of the things, it's better than none. <laughs> no, for sure, man. Okay, how have these good experiences and bad experiences fed into who you are as an artist today? Well, it's all been absolutely instrumental in me working out how I want to live my creative life. The kind of show I want to give and the kind of message I want my work to carry. It's all been absolutely, like... Necessary, of course. It always is. I completely trust um, all of the things that happen in in life. I just feel like everything that happens happens to equip you with the apparatus to deal with the present. So, like, I'm ready right now. 
And then I may get knocked off my feet again, absolutely. And I'll go through that. And then I'll be ready for the next moment that approaches, you know. But right now, I feel like going into the process of putting another album out, having got this foundation of all the work that I've done, you know, all the plays, all the published poetry collections, all the, like the novel, all this stuff that's taught me so much, like about, okay, this is actually what it means to be a writer. This is what it feels like to have got through all that stuff. I've been desperate to be in this position for ages, to just be like, right, okay, that's what it feels like. And then the next step is is the work, always. The thing that you cling on to, the thing that drives you forwards, always is the next idea. So I just feel extremely lucky to be in a position where I can continue to work, because that's the hardest thing about the shadow of having a battle with your own mind, is that you think, well, what if I can't write? What if this goes one step too far? Do you know what I mean? And you end up, like, God forbid, sectioned or something, and you can't you know, can't write. It's happened like, you know, it's that, so these are the things, like, these are the things, because it's, it's a fine line, isn't it? Like, it's a fine line sometimes. You're in this communication with this invisible world all the time, which is your creativity. So, the road, I don't think it would be unfair of me to say that the road to you completing your excellent new album, the book of traps and lessons, mm -hmm. It's not been a smooth one, has it? Or an uncomplicated one, let's say. Well, we started this process, funnily enough, at the beginning well, of this period that I'm talking about, 2014. I was out in New York with Brand New Ancients, which was this long poem that I wrote. And I performed an extract of it on a TV show in the States. And that's what Rick Rubin saw, and he called me up at that time. And it took from then till now. Through conversations with him, I was extremely busy touring and doing stuff. And like eventually we got together and it transpired that his vision for what he would what he hoped I would be able to find in the studio was actually quite challenging for me. And um it took ages. Like he was just trying to get me to kind of basically put everything that made me feel secure, like put it away, peel it off, like break every single convention that I had kind of set myself and everything that made me feel like safe like so whether that was narrative technique or rhythmic flow or whatever it was stuff I've been like stuff that made it okay for me to put my lyrics out there because it was like so technical you know nobody can really argue with the technicality of sustaining a narrative over 12 tracks or whatever you know that's it and it allows you to hide if you have something technical like that going on so he, what he was interested in me doing was just like pushing the lyric right to the front and stopping to stop rapping, he wanted me to go at the flow of the lyric rather than the flow of the beat and to be able to have the beat there and be kind of walking alongside it but not be reliant on it or in service to it. And I, like, I mean, I spent 15 years learning how to stay on the beat. It was like, like impossible to suddenly be like, what, there's a beat and I can't. It was a really challenging process and Let Them Eat Chaos came out of that process because we generated these demos for the second album and we played him to Rick and he was like that's I mean it's not quite what I'm looking for really it's not what it's not what I can see in you and Dan and I were just like well we love this so we're gonna do this so we, so we finished Chaos in Streatham at Dan's we put it out we went on tour and all that time um, Rick's just his kind of guidance has been in the background 
And so every time Dan and I would get together and do some writing, we might find a week, every like six months or something, just to do a bit of writing. And eventually we would get over to the States and we'd play Rick what we'd been working on and he'd be like, this is great, this is not so great. And eventually we went there and he said, um, five of these songs are good and six of these songs are exceptional. And that was it. It was like, right, we understand what he wants. <laughs> it was like, because now I can explain what, what, now I can explain the process, but you have to understand that at the time, nobody knew what the process was. He didn't know what he was looking for. He couldn't say stop rapping. He could just encourage me to like, try and get a bit closer to the core of it. But he didn't know how to say, I want you to get closer to the core of it. It would just be through a process of him saying like, for some reason I'm, I'm not excited by this demo and I am excited by that demo. And, so there's always going to be a problem with, um, I'm guessing, for people who write fiction, like literary non-fiction, whether that comes in the form of prose or poetry or song lyrics or whatever. Mm. And that is that I would guess that it's inevitable that a certain amount of kind of autobiographical material is going to be in there, either as an inspiration or just little kind of details mm-hmm. from... What I'm taking from the album, you seem to start with a kind of like quite universal idea of like a relationship breaking down Mm -hmm. and then there's obviously another relationship happens and this is quite a universal idea but then there's also this really tangible kind of apocalyptic eschatological kind of end times kind of vibe in the background as well. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about the narrative and what inspired it? Um, so I see the narrative as being that the speaker of these poems, who, I mean, I've been describing it that way because it's it enables me to maintain some kind of boundaries, but the reality is it's me. Like, And sometimes I feel like a bit safer to do that because we're just talking and sometimes it can feel exploitative when you're talking to a journalist who then goes away and writes up what you say. But knowing that me and you are just chatting yeah. and that people are just hanging out, listening. I feel like it's maybe a bit more of a safe place to just say, well, the narrative of the album as I conceived it begins with me, but hopefully the speaker of the poems, I, isn't so um, subjective that it doesn't allow people in. My hope for it is that it is universal, like you say. But this uh, person realises they're trapped in patterns of behaviour which are negative, things they are doing, repeating, that are damaging for them and they have all these realizations about their own behavior and spotting um, tendencies within their behavior that they then the focus pulls and they see these same tendencies in in the bigger picture you know I don't believe for a minute that anybody can exist outside of the confines of the society in which they're born etc so there is this kind of push and pull between the everyday very specific life of a person brushing their teeth or going to the train station and then these bigger kind of frantic almost psychedelic um, like breathless chants about how this person fits into their particular society and they can spot all these um, tendencies in the society, they can spot the exploitation, the violence, they can spot it and they don't like it, but when they find it in themselves, they don't know how to exercise it, basically. So it's this person becoming cognizant of the traps that they are stuck in. That's the first half of the album. And then we move into the second half of the album and this person is able to 
begin to put into practice some lessons. They, they try and, through being cognizant and aware of their behaviour, they try and break the patterns. And then the second half of the album is about that journey for them. And the kind of revelatory moment at the end is about a feeling of like real and extreme tenderness for absolute strangers and an ability to love in a more abundant and healthy way as contrasted with a kind of obsessional love that we met in the beginning of the album. This person has all these addictions, including to other people that they're trying to kind of absolve, uh, which by the end of the album, I mean, it's not like an easy, like happy ending, but there's definitely a moment at the end of the album of like acceptance and a bit more lightness and hope. So in the context of the album title, mm -hmm. uh, the book of traps and lessons like traps is kind of referring to like love isn't it loves and or loves and addictions i guess yeah i mean throughout the album you have this like these references to consumption uh to eating to feeding to greed and i think that the the traps in this lesson are about these incessant desires to fill and to eat and consume and um, you know these are personal things for the speaker in the poem You've the, fir the first thing that you meet them and they, the first thing you hear is I came to under a red moon thirsty you know so they've got this like need at the beginning but also like you know I'm not going to beat around the bush like we live in a hyper individualistic post-industrialist, capitalist economy. It's all I've ever known, it's all you've ever known, and it's been here since the Enlightenment and industrialization. And this culture encourages that feeding, need, emptiness in order to fill, because what we are useful for, our entire reality can be boiled down to our agency as consumers. That's, that's yeah. our importance, that's what gives us our lives you know this is it so there is um a desire to escape this inescapable consumption through uh through tenderness love and acceptance of a of a, of a destiny beyond that while you're being frank about the kind of um kind of kind of quasi or semi-autobiographical nature of what mm. you do um there's some really kind of like tender domestic kind of details in the poem and I was wondering to what extent um, if you're kind of close to Kate Tempest um, it comes with a caveat that some details of your life no matter how kind of ostensibly trivial mm. may end up getting immortalised in rhyme yeah I mean I I have Lots and lots and lots of material that I that I write all the time, and then the decision to make some of that public is a decision that I make carefully. Like you know, I, like I was saying before about we might write a twelve-minute-long demo, but then you 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 end up with a three-minute song, and sometimes the more um, exposing moments are the things that you decide intentionally to leave behind but at the same time yeah I mean I hear you it is 
it is definitely the case that if you're if you're with a writer, you know, that they are going to write. That is kind of what we do. But I hope that um, I'm respectful. I talk. I often talk at length with my partner, like you know, especially with this album and with my previous collection, Running Upon the Wires, which dealt explicitly with the end of one relationship and the beginning of another. I spoke to both of the people involved, and you know, it was. It was def. It, it's always a conversation that I'm happy to have, and if the person ever feels that their boundaries have been transgressed somehow, then it's more important to honour them than to like put out work that somebody somewhere feels is exploitative because that's like absolutely not what I'm about but yeah I mean I think it must be a weird thing for people like but I mean it's been happening for ages my first play I wrote when it went on in my local theatre in Deptford like where I grew up it went on at the Albany and the place was just packed like just with all my friends and all the people that you know I wrote this play for and as a character in the play that well, the player's dealing with a, a dead friend, an absent friend, that there it's an anniversary of his death. And, you know, there are people in that audience and it's like, you know, I wrote this for them, for us. It's like, this is our life on stage suddenly. And, like, even more intense than the person who basically, I absolutely, there's a guy, one of my best friends, it's basically him on stage. And, like, he, you know, he, like, he wasn't, he didn't even really mind that. It was, like, somebody else that felt like kind of they couldn't take it they had to they almost had to leave the theater by seeing this representation of the dead friend really because like we'd not really talked about how it felt to have that grievance you know but suddenly it's on stage and these characters are dealing with it but like my mate who you know it's basically him he says the same things and they like walk the same and they do the same like him and his girlfriend they kind of laughed about it they were like that's us but like I was only young then anyway I was in a, and I was still learning how to pay tribute and love your friends and family and everything you know and learn without um without painting them in a way that somehow leaves them out of your interpretation of them you know because you never really know what's making someone tick if you're a writer you might think you've got it but it's only ever you the inside of your brain, isn't it? You don't really know. I don't really know what made him get up every morning. It's crazy when you write about people you know. Again, not trying to draw any parallel, but I wrote an autobiography about recovery from alcoholism. And I went round to literally everyone mentioning the book because there's a huge work-related thing. Most of my mates aren't writers. They just work kind of like yeah. jobs. And yeah. maybe they don't want to be mentioned in a book about drugs and stuff like that. Yeah. And... I went around literally everyone and said, am I all right to write about this stuff? And two people never even replied. They just never spoke to me ever again. So even the fact that I'd written it in the first place, that just ended our relationship. That's heavy, man. And I can can sort of, in retrospect, I can sort of see it really dredges up like unpredictable feelings, I guess. But then I guess, you know, for, for you, it must be some of the power of your work. I think it's really important to learn the feeling of what a boundary is, you know, in your life, in your creative life and in your intimate lives with friends and family. Like, And I think as writers and artists and makers of art, like, you don't know that boundary until somehow something's happened at some point where you th- you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't included that in the book. Like, yeah. is that going to be all right? Do, do they feel I care about that? And 
I think with music it's different. Like people kind of expect musicians to pour their soul out, and there is this like m- music is a response to somebody's life, and you, people do understand albums as being these like kind of diary entries. They, people do understand that about albums, but with literature, because there's this like narrative perspective, it kind of gives the writer an unfair advantage over their characters, you know. And sometimes yeah. that this is the thing that can feel exploitative if you just take someone's story, for example which I, I, I'm really aware of this. And I think as I grow grow as a writer, this is something that's definitely like, definitely something that I feel I'm learning. And I mean, I, don't, I hope no one feels exploited by my work. And, and I hope that my partner, like, I mean, I know that she feels great every time Fire Smoke comes on the radio and her friend texts her and says, you know, Kate's singing about you on the radio. She loves it, <laughs> it's over the moon. So, I mean, I hope like, I hope this next question doesn't sound snide. It's, it's, it's not meant to be, but it was just something I was thinking about yeah. late last night. And that, I think, like, you know, I, I, I assume we'd both probably agree that, you know, the, the majority of male writers really struggle with getting kind of fully fleshed, well-rounded female characters onto the page. And, and then you only have to look at some writers like Martin Amis to see that they don't even bother trying in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not, it's not even on their radar. But I was wondering, are there difficulties for female writers into presenting fully fleshed kind of female characters? And the only reason I'm thinking that is, is I'm just wondering, like, obviously, you know, we're all introduced to the same works of fiction when we're younger. And they're very much written by men and from a male perspective. And, like, if I think back to the books that I read when I was a kid, you know, maybe the female characters were more two-dimensional and less well sketched out mm-hmm. you know and then also I think like there's this whole other thing that men don't have to worry about which is like a man can write a character and he could be just the scum of the earth and it would be fine it wouldn't be a political thing but I'm guessing for a lot of female writers there might be other bits of pressure to write kind of idealized or archetypal female characters you know it has been difficult for me to write fully fully fledged fully fleshed out female characters um and the reason that i know that's the case is because what happens is you have to fight always the narrative traps that um mislead you which come from the collective unconscious or whatever you've read as you know your influences growing up so for example a really good clear example of it is with brand new ancients which was this long poem that I wrote which I was talking about earlier and in that there is some violence that happens to one of the characters this what you see in this poem is two families there's an infidelity you watch two children growing up in the same neighborhood who don't know each other they're related Uh, and you kind of and ostensibly it's kind of about five or six different lives no one life is meant to be worth kind of more than the others in this story which is about two families um and then there's this, the, the hero of the piece is Gloria, this this woman, she's really cool. And she suffers a violence one night. And in one of the early drafts of this play, the first thing that happened when I was writing this violence is that Tommy, her boyfriend, who we've been following since she was a kid, comes to her rescue in this violence. And I, I wrote that as just the natural thing that happens, you know, when I'm writing. Suddenly I've written the female victim and the male um, saviour. And that's just happened without me even realising that I'd fallen into cliché or... 
in my head that was coming out of my imagination. And then I, I clocked it, I saw it. Like um, it was an amazing process at the BAC, Battersea Arts Centre in South London where you do these things called scratch nights where you just share a piece of work before it's finished and the audience give you as much or as little feedback as you can handle. And this one night, you know, sometimes you, like I was saying, you miss things until you perform them in front of an audience. And then I caught it. I was like, right, fuck. So I, I have written this woman. I've never met a passive woman in my life, you know. I've never met one. I read about them all the time. But I've, I've never met a woman who is unable to defend herself, ever. But I see them everywhere. So, so and suddenly I've written one, and I'm I'm creating a narrative. I could this woman could do anything, and I've made her defer to the to some kind of male help. So I just I caught that and I rewrote it, and she just you know, she defends herself like in the in the version that then went on to become the actual story, and it's this amazing euphoric moment because what actually happens is you can see this thing coming, this threat is coming. You know that her boyfriend is on his way back from where he's been and and everybody is thinking the same thing. Like, he, I hope he arrives in time, you know? <laughs> and then what happens is like, fuck, she picks up a bottle and she smashes this guy around the fucking head. <laughs> and it's like, yes, thank you. I mean, it's violent, it's still, it's a huge violence and it's, it's a kind of, it's a difficult thing to bring into a room full of people. But... At the same time, there is this euphoria that comes from it. Um, and that happened as well with, with other things that I've written, like um, the decision to make Harry female uh, was, a, was a decision that came really late in the process of um, my novel, The Bricks That Built Houses. It was the third draft. Like The novel got, it got submitted and signed up and it was ready to go in its first draft where Harry was male. And I was really fighting with it. I was like, what? What's wrong? Like, why doesn't it feel? And I just, I, I had been shying away from writing a queer character for lots of reasons. Like, I wasn't really ready to go there in myself. I had my own shit, but because of my own homophobia that I've inherited throughout my life, etc., etc. Suddenly, this, this was a really important thing, a really important decision to be like, no, let me write this super cool, like super hot, like fucking cool, like queer man, woman person, Harry, like, let me write this character because I've never seen this character. And I, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment to be like, to phone up my editor and be like, Harry's a, Harry's a woman. Like, she was, she was like, oh, yeah, amazing, amazing. But I mean, so that shows you the narrative traps going both way. So for example, in order for, for Gloria to save herself, she had to be, she had to be saved by a man and I had to clock it. In order for Harry to be the coolest character that she could possibly be, fully fleshed and well-rounded, she had to begin life as a man, in my imagination, in order for her to have that much backstory, that much wholeness, you know, not to be reliant on her love interest, etc. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. You have to constantly be fighting these inherited um, kind of narrative cliches. But I think an awareness of them is is the first step in being like, hold on a minute, is that, is this what I want to say about this character, or is this just what I've learned because of everything that I've read? You know. You have been listening to the best of times with me, John Doran, brought to you by Lush and the Quietus. This podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. The theme music is by Oda Gilt. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, give us a star rating, tweet about us, and tell your friends and family. Thanks for listening. 
We'll be back soon with more Best of Times.